a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I am your host of Yoga Birth Babies, and today I have a really fun podcast conversation. I talked to Dr. Shannon Clark about the myths and realities of pregnancy and birth, and she busts some myths and she pumps up some realities. We talk about epidurals. We talk about when can you get it? When is it too late? When is it too early? Is there such a thing as too late and too early? We talk about what happens if you wake up on your back. Is it okay to sleep on your left and your right side? We talk about groupie strep. Is it appropriate to stick a clove of garlic up your vagina? The answer is no. So we go through quite a bit of this and I think it's going to help just demystify some myths and help you know what is reality. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Clark. So Shannon Clark is a double board certified obstetrician and gynecologist and maternal fetal medicine specialist focusing on the care of women with maternal and or fetal complications of pregnancy. She also has an amazing Instagram following babies after 35. And if you're thinking, oh, her name sounds familiar. She was on the podcast over the summer talking about pregnancies after 35. So I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. If you want to listen to that, I will get that for you. Now, before we get to that conversation, I want to remind you that I have a free downloadable you can grab from our website, prenatalyogacenter.com, and it's five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy pains. So I've got a downloadable that you can grab to help alleviate some of those pains. No reason to live with them if I can help you feel better. Also, to help you feel better, we have live prenatal yoga classes seven days a week. So if you're thinking you want to feel better, you want to be part of a community, we've got you covered. We've got class every single day. And of course, we've got postnatal and baby and me. I also want to take a moment and thank those that have left a rating and review for the podcast. It helps people find us, and I appreciate your efforts. I know taking any extra effort nowadays can feel overwhelming, so thank you for those that have done that. And if you haven't, I ask if you have a moment to please do so. And then the last thing I just want to give you a heads up about those that are interested in deepening their practice as a yoga teacher, we've got our 85-hour prenatal yoga teacher approved to complete online work through 2021. So you no longer have to worry about traveling. You no longer have to worry about hotels, et cetera. We've got you covered online. And then if you don't want to go so deep into a big 
yoga training and you just want to maybe deepen some knowledge about if you're a teacher, what to do when a pregnant student walks in your room, or if you're a pregnant student that's still taking open level classes, I've got a short online course for you. It's called Who's Afraid of the Pregnant Yogi? You can check that, of course, from our website or whosafraidofthepregnantyogi.com. Okay, I think we're going to take a super quick break. And when we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Shannon. She is fun. She is quick-witted. She is sharp-tongued. I think you're going to love her. All right, we'll be right back. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Massimo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, Shannon. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am surviving. Oh my gosh, it's a <laughs> year this week that all this craziness has happened. Can you believe yeah. it? Yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> I like your honesty. Yes. So it's been very, very real for me. So yeah. I know. I mean, you're a doctor, you're in the hospitals. I can't even imagine what mm. life must be like. So I appreciate you carving time. I know you're actually in the hospital right now. You have your scrubs on. Um, so let's just jump into it. And again, I want to say sure. thank you for giving me some time because I had such a good time talking with you about having a baby over 35. That was a great sure. conversation. Yeah. All right. So. I feel like I have gotten to know you a little bit from our last conversation, from watching mm -hmm. you on social media, from just our interactions, but let's just have a little bit of your background and who you are and what led you into your profession as an OBGYN. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am currently a double board certified OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist at, um, at academic, academic center where I am a professor with roles as clinician, educator, and researcher. Um, all this stuff I do on social media is something I do on my own time um, to educate. And especially during COVID, I've been very active about getting accurate information out there regarding that. Um, but I knew my first year of residency in OBGYN that I wanted to do a uh, subspecialize and pursue a maternal fetal medicine specialist. So now as a, uh, for my professional work, I just do all high-risk pregnancies where my patients either have a maternal and or fetal complication or condition in pregnancy that requires uh, high-risk care. Um, so that's what I do on the day-to-day -day, uh, here at my uh, academic center. Yeah, you are busy. <laughs> so you are the perfect person to have this conversation. So the yeah. reason that I thought to reach out to you is because you really do have such vast knowledge. I've had students ask me questions and mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes they're out of my lane. So I've been mm -hmm. collecting these questions for you the last mm -hmm. several months. So we're going to go over some myths and realities of pregnancy and birth. So mm -hmm. the first one, this comes up, I'd say at least once or twice a month. It's talking mm -hmm 
but sleeping on the left hand side. I have yeah. students that will ask me in class, Oh my God, I woke up on my back mm-hmm. or I slept on my right side. I'm so scared. Mm-hmm. I hurt my baby. Can mm-hmm. you, and I try to explain the whole Vena Kava thing, but again, yeah. I'm not a doctor, yeah. so I want them to hear it from you. Can you talk about yeah. sleeping on the left hand side? Yeah. So the inferior vena cava or the IVC, it's the largest vein of the human body. So basically it runs along your spine on the inside of your body, right alongside the aorta. So the vena cava carries the venous blood from the lower body and the abdominal pelvic region back up to the heart, whereas the aorta is what takes the oxygenated blood from your heart and and supplies the rest of the body. So it's it completes the circuit. Okay. So why is this important? Well, it's a big vessel and it, since it runs along the right side of the aorta, when we're doing a C-section or we're doing some kind of procedure, even when we're doing an ultrasound in the second and third trimester, we give the patient a little leftward tilt just to take that pressure off the inferior vena cava because if there's pressure on it from the growing uterus, um, and especially as you get into well into the second trimester and the third trimester, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever had where they got really dizzy, lightheaded, or even nauseated when they're doing an ultrasound or an NST or something like that. Well, that's why, because the weight of the uterus kind of uh, impairs the blood flow or impedes the blood flow from the IVC coming back up to the heart, which makes you lightheaded. So the same thing can be said when you're sleeping. Um, you know, as your uterus gets bigger, it gets heavier and you, you know, Typically, don't want to lay flat on your back, especially in the second and third trimester, because you don't want that extra weight to be put on the IVC and make you dizzy or lightheaded even when you're laying down or, you know, potentially impair the blood flow going back up to the rest of the body and even the uterus and the, and the placenta. So we just kind of recommend that you sleep on your side. It doesn't matter which side, left side, right side. They're the, you know, second and third trimesters for two things, just to be safe and also to keep you from freaking out or the, you know, the listener from freaking out. And I hear that all the time as well. You know, what I did, I was pregnant with twins and I was on bed rest for two months from 22 to 31, 31 weeks or so. I got one of those pregnancy pillows, like the big C-shaped body pillow, Mm -hmm. just to remind me to kind of put a tilt in. I never laid completely on one side or the other. I just kind of had a little bit of a tilt. And one day I would feel like tilting to the right and one day I would feel like tilting to the left. So it doesn't really matter which side you tilt on. You know, it's just ideal if you can to just avoid laying directly on your back. But if you wake up, you know, and you find yourself there, don't panic. Likely everything is going to be just fine. But if you really want to be conscientious about it, you know, I felt like the pillow had just helped to remind me um, when I was sleeping and just kind of was there just so I wouldn't roll over completely on my back. I was a little paranoid about it too, I must admit, but I was pregnant with twins. So that's kind of what I did to, to make myself or keep myself from going on my back. And I like that you said they can sleep on either side because yes, sleeping side. on your left side, say like for 20 weeks straight, that can really yeah, screw yeah, up no, your it's, alignment. It's yeah. yeah, yeah it's so <laughs> there we go. Little myth busting. It doesn't just have to be the left. And if you wake mm-hmm. up on your back, just roll yourself over. Mm-hmm. You and baby are fine. Yay. We are mm-hmm. myth busting. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk yeah. about, I have a whole right. list. So the okay. next thing I want to talk about is birthing position. So mm-hmm. one thing that we talk a lot about in prenatal yoga is as we go through the asanas, we look at different positions that could be birthing positions. And mm-hmm. then there's a conversation of, oh, but my care provider said they only want me on my back. I think the only, like, is the only way mm-hmm. to birth on the back. And I say, well, mm-hmm. I think you need to have a conversation. What, what the expect, what the expectations are. So mm-hmm. how would somebody go about having that conversation with mm-hmm. their care provider about options other yeah. than just on their back? 
So it's important that you start these discussions early in your pregnancy. You can add a question for each prenatal visit or a couple of questions, you know, just to get quick, rapid-fire answers. Waiting until right before delivery to throw, and I see patients do that all the time. They'll wait to the very last minute and, you know, want to get all these questions answered, and the doc may or may not have time. But if you kind of feel them throughout your pregnancy, then it's more likely you're going to get the answers as you go along. So that's the first thing I would do. I would suggest starting the conversations early. That way, you can get to know your provider and what they prefer, what they don't necessarily like, how they practice. And if there's something that's really, really important to you, if being able to push squatting is that important to you and you find out that your provider doesn't go for it, then it gives you time to find another provider. Okay. Mm -hmm. If there's any few things that are an absolute no or a deal breaker for you that if you can't do, and it could be anything, you might want to talk sooner than later to your provider about that just in the event that they don't do that for whatever reason or the hospital doesn't allow it. I'm just, I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. That way you can find someone that can allow you to do that, to do that. But what if someone's in the situation, mm-hmm. sometimes finding yeah. another care provider mm-hmm. may not be an option depending that's, on insurance or how late. Well, you know, it's, it's how late is the issue because a lot of providers won't take somebody after I've heard that most common is probably after 32 weeks, but I've even heard after 28 weeks. That's We've, why I say in New York, it's, it's 23, 23 weeks. Yeah. Is that, and so it's different everywhere. So that's also something to, to consider. That's why I say if there are a few things that are, uh, you know, non-negotiable for you, then you might want to make sure that provider knows that from the day one so that if they can't provide that for you, then you find somebody else. The other thing you can do is you can tour labor and delivery and talk to the nurses because nurses are the ones that are going to be laboring with you. Okay, so laboring in different positions is also ideal. But when it comes to pushing, it may be either the nurse that pushes with you. It could be the provider that pushes with you or whoever's delivering you. And then if you're in a teaching hospital, it could be the residents that push with you. So it all, it's different in whatever hospital setting that you're, you're planning on delivering in. But either way, the nurses are definitely going to have some, something to say about that. And I do highly recommend labor and delivery tours. That's really so, smart. When it comes to pushing though, I think that, you know, pushing in various positions, what we think about in a hospital setting, it, it can be a, become problematic in two, for two reasons. Number one, if continuous fetal monitoring is needed and in a hospital setting, most of the time it's going to be needed and required because that's what we do in the hospital. And then second, if you have an epidural, if you have an epidural, um, there's the walking epidurals in some places that have them. And then there's some epidurals where yes, you have some feeling, but you can't really walk. It depends on what the hospital provides. You know, if you have an epidural to where you can't walk, are you going to be able to get in a squatting position to push? Are you going to be able to, you know, probably not. So those are all things to consider. So when you think about, you know, continuous fetal monitoring and that, and sometimes, sometimes that is needed. Okay. And in a hospital setting, that's usually going to be done. And then also if you have an epidural that can limit your pushing positions. So those are things to, to discuss with your provider too. So I still think, you know, you have to think about the big picture. You know, if you have a complicated pregnancy and delivering in a hospital is needed for whatever reason, and then you may not have the option of, pushing in a bunch of different positions, especially if you need an epidural or if you need continuous uh, continuous fetal monitoring. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I'm wondering, yeah. definitely squatting if you don't have you know the sensation in your legs and they're just really heavy. But what about mm-hmm. just being on one side? How how open yeah, do you think push. most yeah. yeah so yeah no so that's that's laboring and you can also push on the side with the leg up. Yeah. You know when I hear about different people pushing, they're wanting to move around and push, get on the birthing balls and push and do that those types of things or pushing in the shower. I mean those a whole lot 
lot of different positions that you can push in and labor in for mm-hmm. that matter. I mean, there's a whole lot out there. Yeah. And then there's also a very negative, uh, and I see this on social media about pushing on your back. You know, no patient should ever be made to push on their back. I've been delivering babies for 20 years. I deliver in a hospital. 99% of my patients push on their back and I've never had an issue with it. Now, they may not have been interested in pushing on in other positions because they are, you know, patients that are delivering in the hospital. But that doesn't mean that we can't make compromises if they're wanting to try a different position. Uh, it all depends on what the situation is. If, you know, the mom's stable, the baby's stable, she's able to get in that position, if you know, if she does have an epidural. And so you kind of have to put all those factors together. That makes absolute sense. So again, coming yeah. back to having a, having a conversation ahead of time to have yeah. expectations just mm-hmm. right out there. All right. Mm-hmm. So we started talking about epidurals, about birthing yeah. positions. Let's keep with that. So I yeah. remember when I was a doula, I had seen a wide range of answers for this. I mm-hmm. actually had a client get an epidural at 10 centimeters um, when mm-hmm. she just didn't feel the urge to push and she was exhausted. And then mm-hmm. I've also heard of people being denied at that point. Mm-hmm. What what is the last chance to get an epidural? So that's going to vary from patient to patient, situation to situation, and provider to provider. And you never know what's going to happen. And I'll give you an example. You know, if I had a patient that comes in or goes from four to, you know, she wasn't expecting to have it, you know, didn't think she needed epidural or wasn't even thinking about it. And the next thing you know, she's 10 centimeters. Um, if she's not feeling the urge to push and the baby looks okay and she's doing okay, but she just happens to be 10 centimeters and that does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, then yeah, we could try to get that epidural in if that's what she wants. Um, there are things that the anesthesiologist can do to where they don't fully dose the epidural and they can do half the medication or kind of do it a little bit differently to where she doesn't go completely numb. Okay. Now, if she gets to 10 centimeters and the baby's coming out and she needs to push, am I going to stop everything to put an epidural in? Probably not. She just needs to have a baby. So there's all, there are those situations too. So, you know, if the page, the baby's coming no matter what, sitting up for an epidural is probably not going to be in the best interest because the baby's still going to come. So it all depends on what the situation is. It's, are you 10 centimeters and the baby's ready to come out or are you 10 centimeters and we have some time, but you can only make those situations, those decisions in that situation. And it's different for every patient. And I think that's really important because I've had students that would come back and be like, I was told this is my last chance at like eight centimeters or, yeah. you know, and, and I, and I say, <laughs> and again, I, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting thing. That was, no. a, um, again, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, especially if they yeah. come back after their birth. I don't mm-hmm. want to be like, oh, that's too bad that happened. Um, you know, cause that can make them feel badly, but I yeah. like that you're putting it out there that mm-hmm. it depends on what's going on. Cause that, yeah, as a doula, I had seen people 10 centimeters, mm-hmm. baby was high, no urge to push, yep. exhausted. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like a great idea, you mm-hmm. know, get the epidural because we had a time to go. So mm-hmm. I like that the people now can hear if they're being, I don't want to use the word threatened, but, um, if it's being said, this is really your last chance, maybe take a step back and evaluate. Is that what we're kind of getting at here? No, I would ask why. Okay. Why is it my last chance? I mean, what's the answer going to be? You know, if there is a legitimate answer because they think, I don't know, the baby's heart tracing doesn't look good. And I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm just putting it right. I, it, right. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. If there's given you an answer that you are okay with, but if they can't really give you an answer, then Why? You know, but I, I don't want to speak for other providers. You know, it's hard to do that. You know, I, I just think that if there's time and the patient wants it and baby's stable, she, the baby's not coming out and we have time to do it. And that's the same thing for how early they want them. If she wants it early, I'll give it early. 
It's not going to change the course of her labor. It depends on her. The only thing that getting it early though may not allow you to move around as much for a longer period of time, right? So that's one thing to consider. But ultimately, it's up to the patient and what they want. Um, you know, it's not my decision to determine uh, when they're in enough pain or when they're far enough dilated to determine when they get an epidural. That's her decision or her choice mm-hmm. uh, or their choice. So, you know, I, I can't speak for the, you know, the... The, the the thing that you said that you know this is the last time, last chance you get I, I don't because I don't I don't do that right um but you know I would ask if that is being told to somebody that they ask why that's great all right so you said mm-hmm. about I was going to ask about the other side mm-hmm. like how soon mm-hmm. um and you said whenever mm-hmm. can you go over a little bit about the pros and cons of getting an epidural you said one thing about or too early not not yeah, in general yeah getting long. it early you know when you get an epidural and you know you may be confined to the bed longer because you're you can't move around and walk around. So that's one thing to consider, you know, but I have patients who have had sexual trauma in the past and mm-hmm. doing exams is not ideal for them or even placing the, the medications that we sometimes use to induce for whatever reason is not ideal for them. And if they want an epidural, I'll give them an epidural. I'll give them an epidural at close, thick and high if that's what they need to get through their labor. So it, it's up to them. Uh, it's not my job to de- determine if their reason for wanting an early epidural is valid or not. It's an epidural. It's not going to change uh, how she labors. It just might mean that she can't or they can't move around as much because they're an epidural, you know, they have an epidural and they may not be able to walk or get up and go to the bathroom with the epidural in. So it's the only thing that really is to consider, but ultimately it's their decision. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're never here mm-hmm. to tell anyone how to birth um, yeah. because it's not, it's not my place. It's not your place. They, they mm-hmm. make their choice, but that's helpful mm-hmm. to know that, you know, if there are reasons that you really want it early and I totally mm-hmm. hear sometimes I've had students that are just so much fear about what it's going to be like, and they're a perfect person to, to, jump in earlier. Yeah. All right. Let's stick with the epidural topic because this has been a conversation amongst students. Mm. I've seen this on Facebook. How uh, does the medication pass along to the baby? So, uh, Basically, epidurals, it's the epidural or epidural block is, is kind of one of the medical terms that we use for it is, is the most common type of pain relief that's used in childbirth in the U.S. Um, so we give medications or not we, I don't, the anesthesiologists give medications, um, through the tube that's threaded into the back, um, that can be given and they usually what we call dose you up or give you a higher dose at the beginning and then an infusion over time where you can push the button to give yourself little boluses throughout the course of your labor. Um, but it's going to have a combination of analgesics, which is usually an opioids and anesthetic. So that's the medications they put into the epidural. And, you know, the whole idea is to get you through the course of the labor, but not to make you so numb that when it comes to the time to push that you can't feel anything. Okay. So, you know, there is an art to the epidural um, and that's what the anesthesiologists are, are great at. So when you think about the fetal neonatal risk for epidural. Those are typically related to what the maternal effects or risk are with an epidural, such as hypotension, meaning low blood pressure. I don't know, you know, if any of your listeners have had an epidural before. A lot of times, before they place the epidural, they will bolus you with fluids to get your blood volume up. They they also, you know, place the epidural, and then sometimes you might have lower blood pressures because the epidural is working and that's one of the side effects of it. So keeping the baby on the monitor and watching for that. Uh, and sometimes the baby's heart rate will even drop down for a period of time right after the epidural. Uh, and then we resuscitate and everything comes back up okay. So that's one of the main risks. But the opioids that are in the epidural can cross the placenta or opioids in general. So opioids can be given uh, intravenously or the what we call the IV pain meds. And they are also giving in along with the analgesics through the epidural. So opioids in general can cross, cross the placenta, um, but there's a definitely a much 
higher risk of it crossing the placenta and affecting baby if it's getting IV. Giving it through the epidural could potentially happen, but the chances are much less. So, you know, I'm not, you know, I remember one of my, uh, actually, I still work with him, a very uh, um, superb researcher, PhD. He always tells me, Shannon, everything crosses the placenta. Everything crosses, he's a placental expert. Everything crosses <laughs> the placenta. Um, you know, cause everybody wants to know that he said it, he says it does and he's the expert. So I'm sure there to some degree opioids do cross the placenta from the epidural, but not enough that I've ever seen that it's going to cause the effects that if I had given, uh, uh like the IV, uh, pain meds or opioids through the, through the, uh, intervene, uh, to, through the vein. So there's, there is definitely a difference. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch topics to group B strap. <laughs> okay. We'll be right back. <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, we are back. All right, so this one makes me laugh because this was a story one of my friends yeah. told me. So is there any way to prevent groupie yeah. strep? And the reason I asked this is because mm-hmm. I think I put this in the notes. One of my friends yeah. stuck a clove of garlic up her vagina and she told me I should yeah. just like made a hole in it and put mm-hmm. a string. So it'd be like a, like a tampon. And she said okay. in the morning she went to pull it out. And just the string came out. And I asked him, like, well, how did you, how did you get the clove out? And she said it was so high up, she had to have her husband go <laughs> fish, it, fish out. it out. Yeah. So, yeah, we've, um, we've had a, a few trips to the triage, uh, to, for, uh, uh garlic removal from the oh, vagina. So that does happen. Yeah. <laughs> It does happen. This is a common situation or somewhat? I would not say common, but it does happen. I've seen it more than once. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk of the reality of that. And can anyone prevent group B strep? No. So this is what I want to clear up about uh, group B strep. It is a normal bacteria in the vagina. Okay. It is not pathologic. Women have it or they don't. let me back up. They ha- when we screen for group B strep in pregnancy, it has to be a certain threshold to screen positive uh, and then to treat, okay? But it is a normal bacteria. It's not like it's a sexually, sexually transmitted disease, disease. It's not like you need antibiotics to cure it. It's normally found in the, in the vagina. It's just that when you get, if you get the culture and it comes back positive, we treat you in labor because we know that if you're positive and you're not treated in labor, the chances that the baby can get group B sepsis uh, – during the course of labor are high and group B sepsis is very, very severe and we want to avoid that. So no, there is nothing you can do to prevent it. 
Okay. So keep it the garlic it, out of your vagina. Keep the garlic out of your vagina. Yes, please do. And it is, it's not a bad thing. I, I, I get the feeling that people feel a little stigmatized if they are GBS positive, like they did something wrong. It is not that you did anything wrong. You could be GBS positive in one pregnancy and not GBS positive in the next pregnancy. You might find that you had a urinary tract infection. And, you know, sometimes we get urine cultures on patients for whatever reason, and it came back with some group B strep and they had no symptoms, but, and that's fine. When it's in the urine, we do treat it with an, a course of antibiotics. And then you're considered GBS positive. You don't need the, um, the specimen, the, the culture that we do at 36 to 38 weeks. So, you know, GB, there's, there's no reason to feel bad or negative about be, being GBS positive. It's just that we need to know what it is so that if you are, or if you have it, excuse me, if you have it, so that if you are pre, uh, positive, we will give you their appropriate antibiotics and labor to prevent uh, the baby getting a uh, group B strep infection. That's helpful. See, we're again mm-hmm. myth busting. I've also mm-hmm. had students ask me, like, should I put yogurt in my vagina? And no, my, God, and, my, and I would say, like, no. I don't feel, uh, again, appropriate to answer that, mm. but usually I would say no to that one. So keep the food yeah. out of the vagina yes, for the, groupie the, stuff. The food is not meant for the vagina. Uh, yeah. All right. See, myth busting. <laughs> okay. And now that yeah. one that comes up a mm. lot is pregnancy waking. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I've heard mm. so much. My, I was very fortunate. My, I had a midwife and an OB and they were really lenient. They're like just between 25 and 30 pounds. That's kind of what we expect. And then mm-hmm. I've had some uh, students say their care providers kind of get on them from it. And then I've heard others say, oh, their care providers don't put much emphasis at all. Mm-hmm. What is your take on pregnancy waking? Yeah. So, you know, I, we do have guidelines based on BMI, the body mass index. And I'm just going to say there's a lot of people out there that think the BMI is BS and we shouldn't be using it because it doesn't take account into different body types. I will say that, yes, I understand that point. However, we don't have a much better tool to use. So until we do, we're going to keep using the BMI and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. So basically what we do is they go through BMI and a normal BMI is 18 and a half to 24.9. And so if you're of a normal BMI pre-pregnancy, that's what you need to know what your pre-pregnancy BMI is. Then we're going to say 25 to 35 pounds in your pregnancy. If you're under a BMI of 18.5, which is considered underweight, you might want to gain more, um, 20, uh, 28 to 30 or 40 pounds. Um, but that also depends on, uh, uh, you know, uh, some ethnicities are just smaller in general and they're not going to gain that much weight no matter what. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an unhealthy pregnancy. Okay. So we kind of keep those things in mind as your obstetrical care provider. Um, overweight's going to be a BMI of 25 to 29.9. In that case, we recommend a weight of uh, 15 to 25 pounds. And then a BMI greater than uh, or equal to 30 lower weight gain is recommended 11 to 20 pounds. And, you know, the, the more it becomes more problematic when you get into the overweight and obese BMIs, because, you know, uh, starting at a, a, lar- a heavier or a, li- a, a larger BMI pre-pregnancy and then getting pregnant is going to predispose you to things like high blood pressure, preeclampsia, diabetes, um, having a big baby, things like that. So we do really want to watch the, the the body weight or sorry, the how much weight gain that you have in pregnancy. And, and it becomes more important, in my opinion, after 20 years of doing this, when the BMI is, you know, reaching 25 uh, or more, uh, especially 40 or more, that's really going to be an issue. So uh, BMI does play a role at the pre-pregnancy BMI. We make the recommendations based on that, but it doesn't mean you have to do that. If your BMI is normal and you only gain 20 pounds, it doesn't mean your pregnancy is going to be unhealthy. Okay. You may be a more active person. You, you know, and everything else is just fine. These are just guidelines. And the best thing you can do is just discuss it with your provider. As long as you're gaining weight and you're healthy, everything should be fine. Uh, But if you have any concerns, just talk to your obstetrical care provider.
from the the feedback I've got from my students is it's more the other side that uh, that? that they may feel like they're being a little chastised for gaining too much weight. Well, I mean, you ha- I see. So if they're gaining too much, uh, that that can be problematic too. Because do I think that any patient, normal BMI or not, should be gaining fifty, sixty, a hundred pounds? No, that is not going to be good for the pregnancy in anyone. Okay, so. I don't chastise anyone. I educate them. But at the end of the day, you know, we unfortunately we can't go home with our patients, nor do you guys want us to, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but there are potential complications. And I'll give my mom as an example. My mom was a first time mom at 21. She gained 60 pounds in her pregnancy. And I, there's no question. This is 47 years ago. There's no question she was diabetic. Now, I don't think she was diagnosed. And I was a huge baby. She had bilateral mediolateral episiotomies, a forceps delivery, and hemorrhaged. So, you know, those are, and I'm not trying to scare people, but excessive weight gain in pregnancy can be problematic. Now, I don't think anybody should be chastised or made to feel, you know, there's a way you have to approach it as an obstetrical care provider. Mm-hmm. I, I tell the residents all the time, if you start out by blaming or scaring your patient, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose them. You're not going to be able to get your point across. It's more about having a conversation and a dialogue about what your concerns are, why you're concerned, and what you want for this pregnancy so that the patient and the baby can have the best outcome. That's the best way to approach it. So I hate to hear that anybody's being chastised, but I will say um, that excessive weight gain in in a pregnancy is problematic. Okay. Thank you. And I appreciate Mm -hmm. your honesty there. All right. Mm -hmm. We're going to swing to another topic, low Mm -hmm. fluid, a reason to wait and see or induce. Yeah. So low fluid, that's called oligohydramnios. And it's going to depend on um, how oligo is defined. And we'll go into that. When did it start? The timing of onset, um, what the placenta looks like in association with it, and any other confounding medical conditions that are going on in the pregnancy. So, for example, I'll give you an example. If you have an AFI of five at 37 weeks, the placenta is grade three and you're diabetic, you're getting delivered. Okay? Because now you have all these red flags. And my, if you're my patient, you're getting delivered. Okay? You, you're, you have all these red flags. You have a grade three placenta. You have diabetes on medication. You have low fluid. Your term now, I'm going to want to get you delivered. Now, if there's no other issues... And, and it depends, again, on how oligohydramnios is defined. Some centers define it as a deepest vertical pocket of, gray, of less than two centimeters. So I don't know if you, whenever you've had an AFI done, we kind of divide the, the abdomen into four areas through the belly button. Right upper quadrant, right lower quadrant, left upper quadrant, left lower quadrant. And we do a deepest vertical pocket in each one of those quadrants. And if you cannot get a DVP in any of those quadrants or deepest vertical pocket uh, of greater than two, or if it's less than two, your DVP is less than two in any of those quadrants, then that could be considered a, a oligo. Or if the overall total AFI is less than five. Centers define it differently wherever you're, you know, you're getting delivered. So some go with the first definition, some go with the last. Um, so if you have oligohydramnios with a DVP of less than two centimeters or an AFI less than five, and you're otherwise uncomplicated, the recommendation for delivery, um, put out by ACOG, uh, is delivered between 36 weeks and 37 weeks, six days. So that's the timing, give or take a few days. Okay. Do I follow that? I do. Now, if she is, the patient is otherwise uncomplicated, has no other issues other than low fluid, um, I might push toward the the lighter end, towards the 38-week mark. But if she has other complications, 
you know, the placenta looks calcified or she also has diabetes or high, or high blood pressure or anything like that, I might go to the lower end of that, that window. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And so yeah. it just helps someone think if they're being told low fluid, that it needs to be really, it's individual. It's not a blanket it's individualized. statement. Yes. It's not a blanket statement. And we do have, we have a window there for a reason. Uh, the window, the recommendation is 36 weeks to 37 weeks, six days for a reason, for the reasons I just stated. Um, I'm all for getting, and this is just speaking for me, getting a patient as far along in the pregnancy as possible. If, as long as they don't, and I always, I say red flags a lot. I, that's how I teach my, my residents. You got to start looking at, are there any red flags that are you're going along as we start trekking along in the pregnancy? What red flags is she picking up or the patient picking up in their pregnancy? You know, and you have to think about coexisting medical conditions and other things that are developing that will help you guide when in that window you're going to recommend delivery. So then here's another question. This is coming Mm -hmm. from my mentor that shared with me and we're going for myth busting reality. Mm -hmm. I was taught that if there is space to wait and see to go home, hydrate Epsom salt bath and see, can that bring the fluid up? Is that actually a myth or is that a reality? Uh, So it's, it's conflicting. Um, do I think that, uh, okay. So let's back up. If, if you're not, if you're below 36 weeks, I'm going to try to do everything I can to get that fluid up. I want to tell you to go home and hydrate, or I'm going to take you into the hospital to get you some IV fluids because I don't want to deliver. And I've had some patients that had oligohydramnios at 32 weeks. I don't want to deliver at 32 weeks. So if there's things that I can do, I'll do that. Do I really think deep in my soul that IV fluids and, and PO hydration works? Not so much. I'm not convinced. And, and the, the literature is kind of conflicting too. Um, but it's not going to hurt. So why not do it? Um, you know, I'm going to be more aggressive about trying to do hydration, whether it's by mouth or IV, the earlier they are in pregnancy with oligohydramnios. Once you get past 36, 37 weeks, I'm not going to be aggressive. You know, I'm not going to be a hero and try to stretch out the pregnancy, uh, you know, especially if there's other things going on. But if they're, if they're pretty low risk otherwise, and there's no other mm-hmm. red flags and they don't want to be induced right then. Mm-hmm. And they say, hey, that's, why, that's why we, that's, so that's why we have the window. The window. Okay. 36 to 37 and six. Say she say they got diagnosed at 36 weeks. Everything else looks okay. No other issues. And they want to go home and PO hydrate fine, as long as everything else looks okay. And then reassess the, the fluid level in a week. Um, you know, but that's just how I practice every, and I'm, I'm not speaking for everybody else. What I'm saying here, I want to make sure everybody, this is not, you know, this is every center has windows that we use and ways that we like to do things. Right. And that's why there are windows uh, as far as when to deliver for certain complications. So I'm just saying there, there is some wiggle room there. My biggest piece of advice though, is if anybody, any provider says we have to deliver you now, and they can't tell you why. They should be able to tell you why. Yeah, <laughs> then there then is a problem. <laughs> okay, so you know, and and that's fine. Ask. There's no nothing wrong with asking why, and there's nothing wrong with asking. Well, can I get more time? If not, why? So what I tell my students is that they can ask the questions: Am I okay? As the pregnant person, is the baby okay? Can we have more time? Because it will highlight, mm-hmm. is there space to negotiate? Is there yes. space to compromise, to, to compromise, compromise yeah. and to mm-hmm. have a conversation as well mm-hmm. as, let's say, take the fear out? Yeah. Because yeah. if, if, you know, if they're not told a medical reason, I can imagine mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. building mm-hmm. up a lot of anxiety of like, well, what's mm-hmm. wrong? What's wrong? Why are yeah. you telling me? Well, I will say, Oligohydramnios is defined as a DV, DV, deepest vertical pocket less than two centimeters or total AFI less than five centimeters. It is something that, 
is not my favorite thing to address because I know that um, in the absence of any other issue, it makes me nervous. I have to, it makes me nervous. After term, after 36 to 37 weeks, it makes me nervous. Even if there's no diabetes, if the placenta still looks fine, I still get nervous. I'm going to be honest with you, but I'm going to have that conversation with the provider, with the patient, uh, and, you know, weigh the risk and the benefits, the pros and cons. You know, if we do decide to stay pregnant, you know, when do I want to see them back? Uh, reassess the fluid, what they can do in the meantime, you know, tell her to do fetal kick counts, things like that. So there are things that we can do, but I will tell you, I, I just had a situation the other day where a patient was th- between 35 and 36 weeks and there was not a black and white answer that, you know, whenever you deliver somebody you want, she needs to be delivered because of X, Y, and Z, black and white, right? But it, most of it was my gut. I just knew that something was not right and I did it and I was 125% right. And I was so glad I was, you know, sometimes we do go on our gut. Right. And, you know, and that's where trusting your, your provider comes into. And sometimes I tell the patients that, listen, I, I just, I have this. And that's what I told the patient the other day. I just have a feeling this is what's going on. Do I have it on black and black and white? No, I don't, but I just have a feeling and I was right. So, you know, well, that's your where provider, your history comes in and your, yeah, your you know, history. And, yeah. you know, we do, we should be allowed a little bit of that because we've been doing, I've been doing it for so long. And, and so, you know, sometimes we just have that feeling and, but if it's your provider and you trust them and you have a good relationship with them, then you should know and trust your provider. And sometimes, you know, uh, if they just tell you that I don't feel good about keeping you pregnant past 37 weeks with an AFI of two then just trust your provider. But if it's not, so kind of going away from just the mm-hmm. low fluid, but just in yeah. general, yeah. if someone has said, well, we have to do this now and someone's saying, but if I'm okay, my baby's okay, mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. we have more time? And they're not able to give an answer. Mm-hmm. Then then it's time to compromise. Okay. So how they're, they're, would that pregnant, what would, how would that pregnant person hold that conversation? Could be like, well, I, I would say, are there any alternatives? Is there anything else we can do? Um, in the meantime, or come back and be reassessed. Uh, what are the risks and the benefits of waiting? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about them. What are the risks and the benefits based on, you know, what we do and what we do not know? Um, you know, it, it, I wish it was so easy to just give you a, you know, a script. It's yeah. not that easy. It's not because as obstetricians and obstetrical care providers, we have to think about two patients in one. Right. And it's not all, unfortunately, it's not always black and white, yeah. but I do think that, um, there should always be room for, for conversation. If, if not, if, if at, least, at least at the very least conversation, if not compromise. That's really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. going to lead us into reasons for in. Induction. And I know, mm-hmm. I hope that's not too big. You don't have to give me every reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. what are some reasons that someone may expect they may hear? And mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like the best way to say this. If someone feels strongly, they would rather not be induced. How, again, how do they have that conversation? Or if someone's wanting to be induced and their care for mm-hmm. like, but you're fine. I don't know if that ever yeah. happens. <laughs> oh yeah, it happens. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the more common reasons of why we as providers might recommend induction. Now I will say for per ACOG and there, the induction of labor or delivery before 39 weeks of pregnancy should not occur unless there is a medical indication, whether it's medical because of mom or medical because of the fetus. Okay. Um, there has to, there should be 
clarify, there should be a medical indication for anybody that's getting delivered before 39 weeks, whether that's via induction or via cesarean section or delivery for any reason. Okay. Um, after 39 weeks, you know, getting induced, there, it could be the most common things that we see, um, are, you know, elevated blood pressures, preeclampsia, uh, complications of diabetes. If there's preterm or premature rupture of membranes, um, other things with maternal medical diseases, like I said, diabetes, renal disease, um, if there's antiphospholipid syndrome, if there's things with the baby, like growth restriction, uh, low fluid is another reason. So there can be growth uh, abnormalities of the baby. So there's, there's tons of reasons um, for induction of labor. Um, but again, inducing anybody before 39 weeks should have a medical indication. It shouldn't just be done for convenience sake. Um, you know, but then after 39 weeks, um, if definitely if there's a medical indication, there's no reason not to do it after 39 weeks. If there's no medical indication and everything is fine, any person can get induced after 39 weeks if they're okay with it. I offer and my institution offers everyone elective induction of labor after 39 weeks if that's what they want. Mm-hmm. And there's no, in the absence of any other medical indication, most of the patients go for it or, or want it. Um, but that's, you know, it's offered to them and they're talked to about it and then they decide whether or not they want to do it. Um, so that is something that is done as well. And that's also based on the arrive, arrive trial. Mm-hmm. So, you know, induction is, uh, there are a lot of reasons for induction, but again, if you are uncomplicated, the baby looks great. You look great. And I hear a lot that people are getting induced just for being 35 and older. No other issue. Um, now if you're after 39 weeks and you're 35 or older and you're okay with that and you've talked to your provider about it and you've talked about the risks and the benefits and the reasons and you want to do it, that's great. You're after 39 weeks, but you know, that's not a reason to deliver early based on age alone. Um, and you know, you could always ask in the absence of any other issues, what would be the reason for, uh, induction? Mm, that's really helpful. I do have mm-hmm. a lot of clients, um, in my, at my studio that are over 35 and we, you and I talked about this before that do yeah. feel they're put in kind of a little separate category. So yeah. I appreciate you yeah, talking yeah. about no, that. I, I, I see a lot that, you know, my provider told me that I have to be delivered at 39 weeks because I'm 35 and the absence of every, anything else that is not an indication for induction 30 being 39 weeks and the patient desires it is okay. That's, that's different, but not just for being 35. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's uh, important to know that, again, there's always room for conversation, if not compromise, even after 39 weeks, if induction is not your thing. But I like that also you, you addressed that someone may want to be induced just because, and I, and I get this, I've been pregnant, mm-hmm. you've been pregnant. Sometimes mm-hmm. just like, I just want this to be done with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then... No, I, I will say <laughs> my overwhelming majority of my patients, if they're offered elective induction at 39 weeks, they want it. And this is the other thing. And people don't want to, I, you know, I think sometimes, especially OBGYNs get such a bad rap. We have to also consider that sometimes it's not always the provider uh, wanting that. Sometimes if you have a provider that's in a group of other people and they uh, have a higher chance of delivering you, if you're being induced at a certain time after 39 weeks, a lot of patients want that. Mm-hmm. They want to try to have their delivery by the provider that's been seeing them. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's after 39 weeks and, you know, it's okay with, with the patient and the provider, some people want to do that. And not wait until they get, yeah, they had that relationship and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. So sometimes getting induced, uh, especially after 39 weeks is, is what the patient wants. And there's nothing wrong with that either. 
Yeah, I agree. Again, this is, mm-hmm. it's about what their, it's for their birth yeah. plan. What's going yeah. to, at the end of the day, satisfy them and it's their story. Yep. All right. Let's talk eating during labor. Promise is my mm-hmm. last one. I've been throwing yeah. a lot at you. All right. Let's talk about that. Eating during labor. It has changed since I have been in this whole medical mm-hmm. world as watching people have babies. Yeah. Um, I know that general anesthesia has greatly uh, mm-hmm. changed since this rule has come mm-hmm. about. Talk about that because if someone had, I've actually had clients that have had very big meals and all of a sudden labor started granted. Most of the time they threw it up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about eating during labor. Yeah. So when you're, when we have, if you come in and labor and you just ate water, I'll say water burger. I don't know if you guys have water burger and that's happened. I mean, a lot of times patients are eating a big meal and they go into labor and they come in and their stomach is full and they're like, there's nothing we can, we can't control that. I can't say, you know what? No, hold the baby in, go back, come back in eight hours. We just have to prepare for it. That's why anesthesia is there. And they always ask, when's the last time you ate or drank anything? And what was it? Okay. Now, if someone has a planned cesarean section or a planned induction, we're going to tell you not to eat. Okay. And that's because we have control over that and we don't want you to eat. Um, what is the chances you're going to need a stat C-section under general anesthesia or your epidural fails and you need general? I don't know. None of us know that. We can't say you have an X percent chance that your epidural is going to fail or you have an X percent chance that something's going to happen and you're not, you're going to have to have general anesthesia. It just happens. When it happens, it happens. There's not a whole lot of warning uh, when we have to do the, the urgent C-sections or for whatever reason. Um, you know, I had an epidural or spinal and my, it's failed and I had to have general now and I, I hadn't eaten, but it was kind of a, quick. Um, so, you know, it just happens. So, you know, if we have control and they're coming in for a planned induction or a planned cesarean section for whatever reason, uh, and we're, we're definitely going to say, please don't eat anything, uh, you know, this many hours before coming in. If it happens and there's no control over it, there's not anything we can do about it. So what about someone that labor spontaneously begins, mm-hmm. they're laboring away, they're getting hungry, they just want to mm-hmm. nibble on something. What mm-hmm. are your thoughts about that? Uh, my if I want to continue to work with anesthesia, uh, the answer is going to be no. Now, listen, this is a hospital setting. Hospitals are hospitals. I get it. I, and, you know, that's the only in- environment I've ever worked in. These are the rules that we play by, and I stand behind them. I'm not going to allow someone to eat during labor on my watch because that's not what we do. Mm-hmm. Okay? And for that reason, because what if they end up in a stat C section? Uh, until you have seen someone aspirate because of a full stomach. It's hard for you to, uh, it might be harder for you to understand why we don't let you eat. But you see somebody aspirate on the OR table or, you know, whatever reason, it's not a good thing to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's something that none of us want to experience because it can be very, very, very severe. Okay. So yes, is it rare? Yes, but it doesn't matter. Some of the most rarest of things in obstetrics, we want to avoid because of what the outcomes are. No, so we have to consider that, that as honesty. well. I've yeah. had some, and I've seen a range of that. I've had some care providers say you can have something like fruit or something mm-hmm. until you have an epidural. Then after you have an epidural, I really want it to be clear fluids. It could be broths. Mm-hmm. It could be popsicles. Yeah. It could be different juices. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, I've had, we, yeah. Yeah. We do let them drink uh, clear liquids or water, but no, no eating. Yeah, I've yeah. seen a range, and then I've had somebody like, as soon as you're in the hospital, absolutely nothing. Yeah. It really seems so, um, 
I guess, care provider individualized of what their comfort level is. It's not just that. It's also patient population individualized. Now, you're talking to a high-risk obstetrician. My patient population is high-risk, okay? I'm not doing low-risk on a day-to-day basis, right? So the chances that my patients end up in a cesarean section are higher because they're complicated to begin with. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why myself and my anesthesiology team are not going to want them to eat. We have a higher risk patient population, but in a lower risk patient population um, that's not being managed by high risk obstetric obstetricians like myself, then they may be more lenient around around that. And and that's perfectly within their right. So again, a lot of this, pretty much every question comes back to having a sense of what the expectations are from Mm -hmm. the care provider and the relationship. So Mm -hmm. It all comes back to communication with mm-hmm. the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's important. It's, you know, I, you know, I've done this a long time. I look at the big picture. I am constantly trying to be two, the five steps ahead about what could potentially happen and to be prepared for that. And again, it's because my patient population is different. They are high risk. So it's my, that's my job is to try to predict what could potentially happen and be prepared for it because I don't want to not be prepared. Um, and so I always try to think about the what ifs. Um, but like you said, we can also talk about things to, I I don't want to scare patients either, but if there's something that I'm starting to worry about, I might want to give them a heads up. And I've done that before. Listen, this is going on. This is what I'm concerned about. I'm just letting you know that, you know, we might have to do this. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that either. So, you know, just communication is so important, um, between the patient and the provider. So there's, you know, neither party's left in the dark and that goes for the patient too. If the patient's having concerns or, uh, worries or has questions, bring it up. Don't leave us in the dark just as much as we shouldn't leave you in the dark about what, what, what we are feeling. I think that's great that you do mm-hmm. talk about, you know, not to freak you out, but I'm just yeah. keeping an eye on this mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. if I was the patient, I would want to know that way mm-hmm. they can also mentally prepare that. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking my labor is going to go this way. All right. Mm-hmm. I have to wrap my head around. We might go this way. And yeah. it just gives them a chance to get grounded with that. Yeah. I think that's a great I mean, way. Yeah. But you can do that without uh, instilling fear or being a negative. It doesn't always mean that I, you know, I'm already signing her up for a certain outcome. Right. It just means it's something that's, if it's on my mind enough to where I'm thinking about it, then I think she should know or they yeah. should know. That's, I really appreciate that um, mm-hmm. about how you practice. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, if you can offer, now you've been doing this for 20 years and you're a mother of two kids. Mm-hmm. So you've got some knowledge. If you can, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of knowledge. If you can offer one tip or piece of advice for new or, new or expectant parents, we'll be right back. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. We went through a lot. And again, I really appreciate you doing this because I feel like there's so much conversation about, mm-hmm. oh, I've heard this. I heard this. And I like that we set the record straight. So mm-hmm. what is a tip or piece of advice you'd like to leave new or expectant parents with? So, uh, this is what I always say when I'm asked this question. Um, there is a wealth of knowledge available, or sorry, a wealth of information available through social media books, online courses, 
um, you name it, you, it's there. You can find information on anything, Facebook groups, uh, mom groups, and you can find information anywhere when it comes to your pregnancy, postpartum, you know, neonatal period, having a new baby at home. What I think is the most important thing is that you choose your providers, your obstetrical care provider, your uh, uh, your pediatrician, um, because that should be the person that you primarily get your information from and the person that you should trust the most. If you feel that you're not getting that information so much so that you're having to seek it out somewhere else, then there could be an issue there. So you need to vet your providers. Uh, I was uh, I said something. Um, people will go take their car for five estimates before they pick on one mechanic, but we don't do that with our OBGYNs or our pediatricians. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's the same same premise. You can start researching before you even get pregnant or an early in pregnancy who your provider and even who your pediatrician is going to be, so you can see that somebody that you really trust and uh, to be your primary information giver. I'm not saying that you can't go to those places for additional information, but if you're, if you're doing it because you're not trusting what you're being told by your provider, then that's more of an issue. That's one of those red flags. If you're not mm-hmm. trusting your provider, because how yeah. can you go into your birth where you, we really do have to work as a team? If you don't trust your provider, that's going to, that's going to derail. Well, I don't even think about it too, from a provider's perspective. Um, you know, and it can be that the provider is, it's not their, of uh, their fault, of uh, uh, any fault of their own, but some, you know, if you're going and you're, you're getting other information in these places, you have to uh, understand and accept the fact that there is a lot of inaccurate and bad information out there. Mm-hmm. Just because you're getting it from somebody, uh, doesn't mean it's accurate or, or right. So if you are still wanting to go to those places and get information, just make sure you're consuming information that is accurate and that the person, uh, you can vet them. You know, you can research them online. If they're enough to, if they're uh, confident enough in what they're putting out that they will put it on social media, whether it's in an inst- Instagram or whatever, you should be able to research that person and find their credentials. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what their training is. If you can't, then you might w- not want to get information from that person. And that is why we're doing this podcast to break, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> to break our yeah. myths and find out the realities. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do appreciate this. Thank you. Okay. Where can people find your work? Yeah. So I'm on, primarily I am on Instagram at babies after 35. And then I'm also on TikTok at the TikTok baby doc. Uh, I also want to add that I have a wealth of information on COVID infection and the vaccination on my Instagram uh, under my COVID highlights. I have like seven different aspects of COVID there with uh, research articles and everything for people to get information that way. I've also done some live discussions. So that's kind of been what I primarily focused on over the past year. That is great. And Mm -hmm. you are an excellent Mm -hmm. source to get information Mm -hmm. from. So I hope those listening run over to your Instagram. Um, Your TikTok Mm -hmm. videos are Mm -hmm. hilarious. (laughs) You just kind of put it out there. I just started doing reels and I I don't know. It's, I'm having, I, they have to be a little more staged for me, but you just got to like go with it. You got the music. I don't know. I, I love what you put out. So well, thank you. Thank, thank you also you. for entertaining me. <laughs> no problem. Anytime, anytime. Well, thank you, Shannon. I really appreciate your time. All right. Have a good day. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.